When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ever wonder if medicine could heal your people and your bottom line? Wonder no more. Express Scripts by Evernorth saved organizations over $53 billion in 2021 by driving out waste. Learn more at evernorth.com. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are speaking about Ja Morant and what is happening with the Memphis Grizzlies right now. Ja Morant has gotten in a lot of trouble off the court. He's taken a leave from the NBA. He's one of the most important players in the league. And we have the perfect person to break down what this story is all about. He is a columnist, writer, and editor at the Daily Memphian. His name is Chris Harrington. Let's go to him right now. Chris Harrington, thanks so much for joining us on the pod. It is a pleasure. Dave Zirin. I know. Chris Harrington. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, so for, for my Nation Magazine listeners, um, who is Ja Morant and what has he meant to the city of Memphis? Ja Morant is um, the most spectacular, arguably the most spectacular young player in the in the National Basketball Association. He is a point guard who has the ferocity of a Allen Iverson, Russell Westbrook, Derrick Rose type, and also has like the pure point guard genes of a Chris Paul type. He's a pretty special talent. Um, He made all NBA last year at the age of 22 and signed a, a, a max contract this past summer. He is the biggest star the Memphis Grizzlies franchise has ever had. And in some ways, maybe the most charismatic and magnetic star the city of Memphis has had since Al Green, if not Elvis Presley. And so he's a pretty big deal for the Memphis Grizzlies and for the city of Memphis. No, amazing. Um, So you know hoops, Chris. You mentioned a couple of comps just now. But coming from, like, say, the period of the 80s, the 90s, who does Ja Morant remind you of? What, What comps can you give? Like, if you could genetically splice several players together even, how do you get Ja Morant? You know, again, it's that combination of the athleticism with the 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 the, the vision and sort of the, the the sense of game control. And so, like, you know, when he was first coming out, a guy like Kevin Johnson, I know you remember from Phoenix, in terms of being a small guard who just explode at the rim, he reminded me of that a little bit, but he just has that pure point guard gene in him. And in some ways, the creativity and the body control and the vision – in some ways, it's maybe like a smaller Penny Hardaway uh, to choose another Memphis comp, because um, Penny had that creativity with the ball and that that sort of that 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 ability before the injuries hit to just sort of every play is a highlight, but at the same time had that sort of control to control the game and sort of to run a team. And so, you know, those are a couple guys I would think about a little bit in terms of splicing together, like Kevin Johnson meets Penny Hardaway, a little bit of that maybe. Mm, so. Um, you know, we, we know what's come out in recent weeks, of course. Uh, and I just first before we talk about where it goes from here, 
Yep. Uh, from being around Ja, how much of what we've seen has surprised you based upon the person that you've seen and interacted with uh, on the Grizzlies? I think, you know, and this all, all this came to a head and that was actually head coach Taylor Jenkins phrase. It was when I asked him about it, maybe I didn't ask him. I, I was in the room. Someone else asked him, but he used the phrase came to a head in Denver. And what happened in Denver was John Morant was out at a club uh, late night or slash early morning and on his own Instagram live feed broadcast himself at a club um, holding up what appeared to be a, a handgun. Um, and, and he has not been on the basketball floor since that moment. Um, but that moment sort of didn't come out of nowhere. It, it's a, it's a situation, it's a situation that felt gradual until it became sudden. And there had been a series of media reports about incidents involving Morant in the weeks leading up to that moment. One of them had been a recent incident, incident at a game this season in which there was an on-court altercation, verbal altercation between a friend of John Morant sitting courtside as a fan and a member of the Indiana Pacers. And then after the game, there was another verbal altercation in the parking lot of the building. And it was alleged by members of the Pacers that a car in which John Morant was exiting the building in, there was a, a laser pointing out of the car at, at Indiana players um, uh, or Indiana members of the Indiana traveling party um, who alleged, they said that they thought the lasers were attached to a gun. Um, they weren't in the car. No one knows. There's security footage. Security footage can't penetrate inside of an SUV. Security footage is also can't know. The NBA investigated, turned that inconclusive, but it was a disturbing story. And there had been two other stories that had come out recently that were from incidents leading, leading incidents that were last summer. So not new incidents, but new reporting of old incidents that were both about, in one case, a physical altercation with a 17-year-old basketball recruit who was playing a pickup game at John Morant's house. And then the other was a verbal altercation with a security guard at a local mall here in Memphis. So these three stories had all come out in the weeks leading up to the incident in Denver. And so for these things to be public and for there to be this mic, this spotlight on John Morant and his sort of off-court behavior and for him to publicly broadcast this thing from the Denver club on his own was kind of a shot. It, it sort of felt like there were issues around Morant's off-court behavior, but now that it's become public, it was a real test for him to sort of, you know, tamp things down. And instead it went hard the other way. And now, you know, he's been off the floor since um, the NBA is investigating He's on what is an effective suspension with the team, although technically they're not calling it that. And then the news came out via ESPN. Um, Adrian Wojnarowski and Tim McMahon reporting for ESPN last night, something that had been widely murmured about, but no one was quite able to report until now that he is he has checked himself into some type of counseling program. Um, the specifics of that are not known. Um but when 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 he was taken off the floor by the Grizzlies, he put out a statement on his own that had therapeutic language in it. It was it was about language about seeking help, uh, about seeking better ways to deal with his stress. And so I've sort of I've sort of um, you know gone along. I've sort of sort of been rambling here on you, but that's basically the situation. Are are you cynical about this at all? Like he's going to rehab for being twenty three and rich? Like no, I, I'm you not. Think there's I, something real here. I am somewhat wary of I, I think you get into tricky territory when you when you when you use sort of that therapeutic language 
because it can be it can it can be a shield sometimes, and it's hard to judge from the outside. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not. I'm not cynical about it in regards to Ja. I think there were. I, I think. I think it does. It does not. It's important for 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 help that he needs to not be a shield against account, accountability, which she also needs. So these two things need to go together, and I think the team has been pretty good about linking them. About we want to help Ja, we want to support Ja, but Ja needs to be accountable to himself and to the team, and those two things sort of have to go together. I think. There, I think Ja is a 23-year-old, 23-year-old who's been under a lot of stress. Um, I go back to an interview he did, and it's been circulated around, but I think for good reason. He did an interview a couple of years ago during the COVID bubble, and it was with Taylor Rooks. Mm. And he said in that interview, you know, I feel like I have to be so accountable to make sure everyone else is okay. And frankly, he's talking about his family. He's talking about his friends. He's talking about the sudden elevation of him to sort of this – in this position of responsibility to all these people around him. And it says, I feel like I have to always be to make sure everyone else is okay, but sometimes I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. And that really came back around to me when all the, when a lot of this stuff happened, because, you know, the incident that precipitated his, 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 his absence from the floor um, was one thing, but the incidents that led up to that, there was a common denominator in a lot of that of people around Ja calling him to situations People around Ja getting into conversation, getting into arguments with people that he then gets involved in after that. I think there's a lot, there's a lot of stress on him as a 23-year-old sudden superstar. This is not a guy who was well known in high school. He was not a huge recruit, did not go to a huge college. So there was not a slow preparation for this for him. Mm-hmm. He he was not an overnight star, but it very quickly went from someone no one knows to one of the bigger stars in the league. I think there's a lot of pressure on him you know, to, to represent not only the Grizzlies, but the NBA. Um, Nike has invested a lot in him. I do think there's a lot of pressure on him, and I think he is not – he has struggled to adapt to the sudden fame and the sudden wealth in a way that we see a lot, frankly, not just in sports when that happens to people. Oh, absolutely. I, I know you can't answer for the city of Memphis, but what has been the response of the city to all of this? Because one could imagine multiple – types of responses to a situation like this? Oh, I think there was a lot of frustration. I I think when the incident happened in Denver with the club and with the broadcast and what appeared to be a gun, I think there was a lot of, there was a lot of shaking of the heads, not only in Memphis, I think in the Grizzlies organization, because at that point it was known. It was known that that there was an awareness of off-court issues with, with Morant that he needed to correct and he needed to deal with. And for him in the moment in which this is all publicly known to do that, to, to, I, I likened it to, and there, there have been a lot of people, I mean, his agent had put out a statement saying that, um, you know, none of, none of, none of the allegations involving guns and John Moran have ever been corroborated. Um, and then two days later, he shows a, shows a gun. A lot of people with the organization had basically attacked the messenger on some of these stories that had come out. Mm-hmm. There have been people in the media who had scoffed at the idea that there would have been a gun involved in that Pacers incident. And again, I don't know whether there was or not. The NBA investigation could not corroborate. It did not exonerate or or um, convict on that charge. It said there's no evidence. But for all of these people to come out in his support and then for him to do that, to me, it was almost I, I'm not trying to make fight of it, but I, I just can't get this image out of my head. It's almost like the Looney Tunes cartoon where a bunch of people go out on the limb. And Ja comes out with them with a saw, right? And and I think there was a lot of like, a lot of um, 
a lot of frustration, certainly in Memphis, that he did that in that moment. But I also think there's a lot of support for him. I think people are people are very supportive of the idea of him seeking help. Um, people are very supportive of 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 the one thing about Morant is that there are there are off court issues. There are not on court issues. There are not teammate issues. His teammates love him. Um, there are other players around the league, and I'm not going to bring up their names, but with their role issues about about them leading a basketball team. That is not an issue here. His teammates love him. The organization loves him. He's a great player, not only individually, but as a, as a point guard, as a leader. Um, and so everyone in Memphis is frustrated with what his actions, but I think rooting for him to correct them. And I think, you know, whenever he shows back up, the first game he plays in FedEx Forum, whether it's this season or it's next season, and I'm sorry to drop the corporate name. And, you know, they embed this stuff and you just you, you, you oh, yeah. used to saying it. But that's the name of the building, the arena here in Memphis. Yeah, the, um, the only one I think I'm never going to say is crypto.com. Yeah, never, 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 never. That one, um, I'm drawing the line. So whenever the, whenever the first game he plays, assuming that, that you know, he's taken the steps publicly and people feel like he's taken the accountability, I think the ovation for him is going to be deafening uh, when he makes mm. it back. Because everyone... Not only does the city of Memphis and the Memphis Grizzlies franchise need him, um, frankly, so does the NBA. I mean, there's a lot of stock in him as like the star people are getting behind. I mean, you know, after LeBron and Steph, Ja is the guy who seems like he has next, if not to win an MVP, if not to win a title, but to be a kind of standard bearer as a star for the league. And he's really put that in jeopardy in the recent weeks. You know, it's not nearly as important as him returning to the court and him returning to a sense of psychological health. Right. Uh, But, but, uh, as you know, he's probably now not going to make an all-NBA team when it looked like a lock earlier this year. And that could mean upwards of what thirty million dollar difference in closer to closer to forty. So he's he signed he signed a max contract a max contract extension last summer with the Grizzlies. So he signed the, signed the extension last summer. The new contract doesn't begin until next season. And the way these contracts work in the NBA is you can sign, there's a maximum salary that you can sign for. And it's, it's based on a percentage of the salary cap relative to your, how long you've been in the league, but you, but there, but you can sign a maximum contract that has what, what are called escalators. And what that is, is these are triggers that if you hit certain criteria, the max contract can increase. It, it can become what the NBA calls a super max. So he locked in a regular max contract, which for him is going to be five years, roughly 190 million. I think 193 is the projected number. Those things can change as the cap changes, but that was the projection. The super max escalator, which would get triggered if he made an all NBA team as he did last season, but he would have to do it again to trigger the escalator. The escalator would take that $193 million contract to something like 230 million. So yeah, this this in all likelihood, this is going to cost him forty million dollars on his NBA contract. But honestly, the bigger threat for him is is the is the Nike connection and some of the other off court stuff. And and that's what he is. In addition to getting right for his own health and well being and his family's health and well being, from a financial perspective, the bigger concern is preserving, I think, his status as 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 a marketing person off the court than it is as big as forty million dollars is over five years. It's it's the bigger concern is jeopardizing the off-court stuff, I think. Uh, just as an aside, uh, you know, the media, for people who don't know, vote on those all-NBA teams. What do you think about the media playing a role in the size of players' contracts? I have mixed feelings. I, 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 I don't like the idea of the media playing a role in the size of players' contracts. 
the idea of the media voting on awards, if you were able to take the financial calculation out of it, I think is generally good because frankly, as much as the media gets maligned, I think if you look at the all-star votes, they do a better job than the fans or the players. They probably, they take it more seriously and bring more knowledge to it and, and are more serious about what they do. So I think media voting is generally sound, but I think the idea that media who covers the players has some say on, on the, the money they make, I think is, I think, I think it would be nice to divorce the idea that there are there are contra- contractual incentives that are tied to media voting, I think, is a problem, and that's something that should probably be looked at at the league level. Yeah, you know, you you and I are old enough to remember Allen Iverson going through some gnarly incidents. Yep. Uh, and in my opinion, way back when in the late '90s, early aughts, uh, the media really did take the opportunity to also be let's say racist in terms of how they discussed Allen Iverson and his situations. Are we better now with John ja Morant? I think, I mean, it's, it's hard, it's hard to be worse. Although certainly as we've seen, and <laughs> as we've seen, we are capable of being worse. Like, like, you know, progression is not guaranteed in this country. We've seen that in all kinds of ways, but okay. I do think, I do, I do think on that specific question, we are better. The thing that's jumped out on the Morant stuff it has been a slightly different sort of sort of thing where there've been a lot of people and it's mostly like nameless people on social media and fans, but it, but it, but it's trickled into some, you know, talking head media name brand stuff. There's this, there's this, this need to insist that John Morant did not come from a hard or difficult background. And to me, the need to insist that someone did not come from that background is the other side of the coin to romanticizing that kind of background. Exactly. Um, And and it, it, this idea, I've heard people say, you know, he, he grew up with two parents and he grew up in the suburbs and he went to private school. And the last two of those things are not true. The first one is the last two of those things are not true. And to me, as someone, as you, as you know, like I'm from the South, I grew up in Arkansas, I grew up in small towns. I think a lot of the commentary around that comes from people who have a conception of the country that's very major city based, mm-hmm. major city and suburbs. The majority of the country population wise maybe that but the, the majority of the country geographically is not that john moran is from little i don't know if i can cuss on this podcast or not yeah absolutely he, he's some little country ass towns in the south and i can say that because i'm from little country ass towns in the south before mm-hmm. i moved to memphis i grew up in little towns in arkansas in the delta um most of my family still lives in little country ass towns in the south that is not a privileged background and 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 to be frank about it particularly for black americans who are from those communities there is very little privilege, frankly, um, for for people who come for black Americans who come from these small town and rural communities in the South. And so, like, for whatever it's worth, John Morant did not grow up in a privileged environment. He grew up in a pretty tough environment. I, I but I don't you know, I don't see the need to either romanticize that or to, to use it as a charge against you if you're not. It's just it, it is reality. And I don't think it's material necessarily to the issues at hand with John Morant. But it has been a talking point about him that I found a little off-putting and unnecessary. Yeah, I think you just covered it all. I'll just add one, one slight thing to that is the the basketball writer giving the you know Father Flanagan speech has gotten on my nerves a little bit. Yeah, and I really would like to name people by name, but I'm not going to because it's just too classy for that. But the people who've stopped their podcasts in the middle and said, "I want to address Ja personally right now." Yeah. Ja, you have so much, and it's just like he's not listening to you. What what are you what are you doing? No, I am not a fan. As someone who has written and talked about this probably too much because I cover the Memphis Grizzlies, 
I've made a point, like, I'm not, I'm not talking to Ja, like, you know, <laughs> I'm talking to you, I'm talking to the reader, I'm talking to whoever I'm on a radio show with. I'm not doing an open letter to John Moran. And I don't think anyone else needs to be doing open letters to John Moran either. Yeah. Not in the media. No, no doubt. Uh, you've been so generous with your time. Just a, a couple of quick hitters. Uh, is this a lost season for the Memphis Grizzlies? Um, it depends on your level of expectation. The funny thing is, like, you know, they've been without Stephen Adams starting center for like six weeks at this point. And now they the John Morant thing. They're four games into that. And there's been this sense of like the Grizzlies are in chaos and the season's coming off the rails. And like, guess what? They were second in the West when all that stuff started, and they're second in the West today. Um, they're closer to first. They're as close to first as they are fourth. Um, if, if your expectation was maybe this team can get to the NBA Finals, I think that's a hard expectation to see. And so, so I think the ceiling has been lowered on this team. Guess what? This team is going to be either the two or the three seed in the West going into the playoffs. Um, if they get John Morant back, and no one knows what the future holds on that, but they're, you know, it's not a physical thing. And so you know, depending on what gets going on with his counseling, what's going on with his accountability to the team, what's going on relative to the league investigation, there's at least a decent chance he's back. This is a good team and they will be a good team and they will be, they'll have home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs. Um, the Grizzlies franchise has actually never won a playoff series two years in a row. Um, the old grit and grind era was an every other year advanced thing. So to me, the real like the real goal now should sort of be like we're going to be in the playoffs. Let's win the first round, and then we'll take it from there. So I think the idea of that this is a team that might get to the NBA Finals, which in the West is wide open, like you you could dream about. That's hard to see at this point. But the idea that this is going to be a competitive playoff team that might that might advance at least around, I think that's very much there. And then like if you're in that situation, your season is not lost. Mm. And who's your MVP, Chris? The, the most catastrophically so, third rail discussion now for some reason. So the, so I am not, I do not have a vote for MV, MVP. I do have a vote in the Tim Bontemps e, MVP straw poll for ESPN. Yeah. And I think the unfortunate thing about if if there is an, if there is an unfortunate thing about the idea of Jokic winning this year, the problem is that he won last year. I, I, last season, my vote was for Giannis Antetokounmpo. He didn't even finish second. I think MB finished second. Yep. So I would have voted for Giannis last season. I do. Th I think the case for Jokic is very strong this season. It's even stronger than it was the last two seasons. Mm -hmm. um, I do think it's re it's it's legitimately odd to to see a guy win three in a row when you're not LeBron James or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or, or you know that level of player. Um, I think there, but I think you know I'm not that worked up about it. I, I think there's a good case for Jokic, but I think there's a good case for Embiid and Giannis. And to me, it's 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 twofold. It's one. Yeah, Jokic is a little better offensively, but we're really good. We're better defensively, and our conference is tougher. Finishing first or second in the East this season is probably more impressive than finishing first in the West this season. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a legit case for all three of those guys. Um, I'm not that worked up about it. I don't know who I would vote for. I would say the season's not over. Like, all these games still matter, and no one has to decide right now. Um, but I do sort of wish Giannis had won it last year. I think the conversation – would be would 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 be a little bit easier to have this season if that had been the case. Yeah, and as for this season, I find it odd that Giannis isn't getting more steam given the absence of Chris Middleton. Like I'm surprised yeah. that's not more part of the narrative for Giannis. I've, maybe it's an underrating of Chris Middleton and what he means to that team. I mean, Milwaukee. I mean, I find it odd that somewhat odd that Brooke Lopez. This is relates to the Grizzlies because it seems like we have this two man race for defensive player of the year between Brooke Lopez, who's the center for Milwaukee, and Jaron Jackson here for the Grizzlies. 
I'm not sure Brooke Lopez is even the best defensive player on that team. Like that might be honest too. And yeah. So if you're averaging 30 a game and 30 and 10, and you're the best defensive player on a team that's going to have the best record in the NBA and might finish with the number one defense in the NBA, that's a pretty, pretty strong case. Well, Chris, you've been, you, like I said, you've been so generous with your time. Um, before you go, I do have to ask you the question I ask every guest on this podcast, and I can't believe how fraught for you in particular this question is going to be. But what music are you listening to these days? So, as I told you before we started recording, my daughter and I are going to see Yola Tango tonight in Nashville as we speak. We're road tripping. Um, I've been, I've been, I've been very indie rock lately. Uh, Big Thief. Uh, Planes, which is a band uh, that's a spinoff from the band Waxahachie, I'm liking a lot. Um, you know, I I did like a lot of people reach back to De La Soul, but not because yeah. not not. I, but I I still have my CDs. Like I got all my De La Soul. I didn't mm. need them to be on streaming, but it gave me an excuse to go back and like you know, if everyone's going to listen to De La Soul, I approve of that. That should be an annual holiday that we all spend a week listening to De La Soul. So I've been going back to that. I don't know where you are on De La Soul. I love all De La Soul, but Three Feet High and Rising is very, very short list record for me. That That is a foundational text for me finding my way in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Similar to me, a thousand percent made it acceptable. I, you know, I was in high school in New York at the time and it made it acceptable to be a hip hop nerd. Yeah. You know, you didn't have to wear the fancy clothes. Take it off, 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 you know, as they said. Take yeah. that Kangle off. Okay, I'll stop. Um, Chris, man, thanks so much. for. I know how busy you are. Good luck with Yola Tango. I hope it's awesome. Please let me know if it's a good show. I got tickets of my own this weekend. Thank you so much. All right, thanks, Dave. You well. We'll be back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, there has been a maelstrom of anger and recrimination among the media and among fans about who should be the most valuable player in the National Basketball Association this year. There are three key candidates. One is Nikola Jokic of the West-leading Denver Nuggets. Nikola Jokic is averaging a triple-double, which from the center position is utterly amazing. One is Joel Embiid of the Philadelphia 76ers, really the most dominant big man of his era, uh, leading the NBA in scoring as well, 10 rebounds along with it. And then the other is Giannis Antetokounmpo of the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, Monster stats, would be the first person uh, to average 30 points, 13 rebounds, six assists in the same season. So another monster season from Giannis Antetokounmpo. If you want to know, my personal choice is Giannis Antetokounmpo because the Milwaukee Bucks are the top team in the East. The East is a harder division than the West. And Chris Middleton 
the second best player or maybe third best player on the Milwaukee Bucks has been out and injured for most of this entire season. And so to see Giannis carry this team in that context, absolutely amazing. So I'm a Giannis guy, but the fight is not about who should be the MVP. It's about who shouldn't be the MVP. And that's what makes it, I think, particularly toxic because you have these three amazing players and people are looking to tear them down instead of raise up the one they think needs to be raised up. So I, I hate the discourse around this so much. Uh, the discourse and the anger is driven by the fact that Nikola Jokic is looking probably as the favorite for his third straight Most Valuable Player Award. And that really bothers people. Three straight awards has only been done three times in NBA history. And they're three legends. Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Larry Bird. That's it. That's the list. And here you have Nikola Jokic, whose you know, postseason success has not been great. And then there are a lot of people who just say, this guy's not a three-time MVP. And he shouldn't be put in that category. And then other people say... It's supposed to be an award that you judge year to year, and being bored with somebody is not a reason to not vote for them. And then Kendrick Perkins, who's a guest on this podcast uh, very recently, uh, Kendrick Perkins, uh, he, I hate that phrase, I was about to say he injected the idea that racism might be involved in people's love of Nikola Jokic. Because uh, he's not injecting racism. Our society is racist. And Nicole, and uh, Kendrick Perkins is pointing that out. Now, Kendrick Perkins has been slammed for this, uh, for saying that it's because Jokic is white. Kendrick Perkins also brought in two other MVPs who are white from the last 25 years. Beloved players, Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki. So people are really mad at Kendrick. And ESPN even took the step of really putting a disclaimer saying that Kendrick Perkins has been given incorrect statistics as far as, say, the percentage of voters who are white. For example, Kendrick Perkins said that 80% of voters are, are white. This is white media members. The actual number is 68%, which doesn't seem like that much of a difference, yet ESPN still felt the need to feel like they had to put Kendrick Perkins in his place. Now, Perk hasn't moved an inch from his opinion, though. And he, he's standing by this, that there's favoritism being leveled towards Jokic. And people are so mad at him for saying this. Now, look, I don't know what's in the hearts of the voters at all. Most people think this is more a case of people being in love and besotted with advanced statistics that most fans don't understand that show Jokic is the most efficient player of his generation and in the, on the short list of ever. So... For people who are in love with advanced statistics, it's not even a question. For people who are in love with the idea of a player taking an entire team on his shoulders night after night, uh, they're, they more are inclined towards Embiid. And for people who, you know, like <laughs> winning teams that have gone on 19-1 runs without their second or third best player, like me, you like Giannis Antetokounmpo. So I guess what I'm calling for here is for people to turn down the volume on this because, and Zach Lowe said this on his podcast and I agree with it very much, all these guys are great. So make the case for who you think is the best of the great. Do I think Jokic should have been MVP last year? I actually agree with uh, what Chris Harrington said. I thought last year should have been Giannis as well. 
So, you know, maybe I'm just a Giannis mark. Who knows? But I just think Giannis is that good. Uh, and I think Jokic is that good. And I think Embiid is that good. So we've got great players here. Uh, players such as Luka Doncic have fallen back. It's between these three folks. And I just hope whoever wins, everybody just applauds. Because after this season, they deserve it. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to Lamar Jackson. The holding out. Well, actually, he's not holding out anymore. The the non-exclusive tag-signed quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens waiting in vain for another team to put forward a monster contract that the Ravens either have to reject or match. Lamar deserves this money, and I give him credit for not signing for anything below what he thinks he's worth. Now, what's completely taken this and turned it upside down is the fact that last year, the Cleveland Browns and their owner, Jimmy Haslam, first of all, you're a grown man, you don't gotta go as Jimmy. Even Jimmy Stewart went by James Stewart. But Jimmy himself, Jimmy Haslam, decided to pay Deshaun Watson, who's a repugnant person on every conceivable level, $230 million in guaranteed money. The NFL doesn't do guaranteed money. So there's a fury here by the other NFL owners, and Lamar is the person they're taking it out on, because Lamar is saying, hey, wait a minute, I'm better than Deshaun Watson. I'm beloved in the community. I haven't been accused of sexual assault, of masseuses, on dozens of occasions. So please, why can't I be paid as much or more than Deshaun Watson? It's a very reasonable argument. Which gets to the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down goes to the NFL ownership fraternity that has decided to collude. Collusion is no illusion. Like the idea that teams have come forward publicly to say, we don't want Lamar, we don't want Lamar. It's not about Lamar, it's about their utter, utter anger towards Jimmy Haslam, who I can tell you is the least popular NFL owner not named Dan Snyder. And because Dan Snyder hires private investigators to dig up dirt on his fellow franchise owners, that's not a way to win popularity contest. But as we say in the DC area, that's so Dan. But I could go off on a tangent about Dan Snyder. This is really about uh, Jimmy Haslam. And no one wants guaranteed contracts among the ownership fraternity in the National Football League. Their argument is that players get injured too much. They're going to pay people and, uh, you know, not to play, basically. And they don't want to be doing that. Uh, look. And they want to be able to get out of bad contracts. Look, from their perspective, I get it. 
but Jimmy Haslam has poured the wine out and you're not getting that back in the bottle. And the people who should benefit from this new system, frankly, aren't the Deshaun Watsons of the world. They are the Lamar Jacksons. So to Jimmy Haslam, you can always sit your ass down. You're a criminal. But, you know, some are born great and some have greatness thrust upon them. And this has been thrust upon Jimmy Haslam to create a new era of guaranteed money in the National Football League. The question is, will the other NFL owners actually accede to the new demands? Or will they roll backwards into a world of collusion? Now, they say there's no collusion. I think you should call Colin Kaepernick and ask him. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much, Chris Harrington, who I didn't mention this, but, you know, we went to college together. He was the best writer on campus then. He's one of the best writers now. Thank you to the producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.